I invite you to take your scriptures and turn back to that First John chapter 2, verse 28 passage we read a little bit ago. If I asked you this morning to respond to this question, how many of you are looking for Jesus as if he could come back at any moment? Thank you. If, if you did, I, I can have you applaud or say amen, right? That's okay. Be careful now. I'm going to ask the second question, and you might not be so clear. But what if I asked you another question? How many of you are living for Jesus as if he could come back at any moment? You see, the Apostle John in our text this morning, he wants to ask his readers and he wants to ask all of us today. He wants to say, are you living for the one that you are looking for? Let me say that again. Are you living for the one that you are looking for? And that thought and that theme of Jesus coming back and living in light of it is obviously the theme of this passage and even the bigger text That is 228 through 321. Both of those verses in that big section have the word Jesus coming back again. In fact, in our little text, verse 28 and then in 32, both of them talk about Jesus coming, his appearing. And John wants us to think about that. He's talked about all along in 1 John, your attitudes and your actions. He's talked about your behaviors and your beliefs. And now he's going to get even more below the surface into our hearts and lives because he's going to ask a question today about your motivation. What is compelling you and moving you to live as he's instructed us to do? John wants us, and he calls us in the text, techna. He says, you are children, see, That's how he starts out in verse 28. And now, little children, this is who you are. And now I want to show you what it means to live that way. See, God's children live now in the light of then, later. See, he wants us to know that we live this day in light of that day. And we'd have to be honest this morning, all of us that we don't always do that. And we'd also have to say, honestly, that it isn't always easy by any stretch to do that because we get wrapped up in the now. And John wants us to understand that he grasps that and he wants to push us there because he actually uses the word now in that way twice in our text. Look at verse 28 of chapter 2 and then chapter 3 and verse 2. And he says, now little children. Now are we the sons of God. He says, listen, it's not someday when Jesus comes back and we go to heaven and he makes us like him, then we'll be the children of God. He says, no, we're the children now. And in the original language, the word now is at the front of the sentence, and that always means it's emphatic. In other words, in that sentence, John is stressing that truth more than anything else in that little part of the verse. He wants you to know your life should be different now. You, if you are looking for Jesus, you will be living for Jesus. In the text, because of last week, he also says this. You know why it's important to live now? Because not only is Christ coming, but what did we learned last week? Antichrist is coming. See, and we have choices because Christ and Antichrist are coming. And depending on where your hope is, he's going to tell us, depending on where you're looking for, that'll make the difference in the choices and the things that you believe and how that you behave. 
And so the question is, are you living for and looking for the Christ or the Antichrist? How would you know? It's whether you're living a lie or you're living the truth. So John says to us again, now, God's children, here's, here's how you know if you are. You attach your now to your later. They're not separated from one another. It's not just that you live for now and someday you're looking forward to later. No, he says God's children have this way of connecting how they live now with what they will be later. See, in this whole text of 1 John, and we've already said it once, and I'm going to repeat it because I want you to get it. He says negative and positive comparisons, he, dualisms. And he, and he says it in negative way. Light and darkness don't go together. Love and hatred don't go together. Truth and lie don't go together. Life and death don't go together. But he says there are things that do go together. One is belief and behavior, and also ours today is loving and looking. You see, look, living and looking, they go together he says, and you have, that's what's true of God's children. So let me ask you, let me ask you personally today. Is your now connected to your later? Does, in your life, does that day have any influence on today? For a lot of Christians, people who call themselves followers of Jesus, there is a big disconnect in your life between what you say you're looking for and what you are living for. You see, our problem is, is that we tend to only have an emphasis in our life on what is now, even as God's people. What are your marriage plans? As you grow older and you get to the place where you're looking for someone to spend your life with, you say, I, I've talked to Christians, I've, I've talked to young men and young ladies, and they know what God's word says about only marrying in the Lord but they really want a spouse and sometimes they're looking for something else and something more in the wrong places and they get, start dating lost people and then they get engaged to a lost person and, they, and, and strangely enough, even though we've had talks, they end up marrying a lost person and I wonder, how does that happen? Because they only are living only for now. Your pursuit of education and a scholarship that's got a high GPA, that's what you need, Often, in pursuit of those things, it allows very little time, if any time, for a pursuit of God. No time, too often, for church, for prayer, Bible study, ministry. There really isn't time for that because you're living for the now. You're living for the pursuit of what you can gain here. And so your pursuit of a college future doesn't leave any pursuit of an eternal future. And God is marginalized. He's pushed to the periphery of your life. And he's put to the side. Why? Because all that you have is what you're doing now. That happens also in our lives financially, doesn't it? All of our money, or most of it, if not all of it, goes to almost exclusively to now. Things about now. And perhaps only when we're in a church and we feel a little guilty and our conscience is a little bit stabbed that we might put a little bit of money in the offering plate if we have it with us that day. But it's telling, isn't it? Our money goes to newer houses and nicer cars, and truthfully, our money tells a story about a life that is only consumed with now. Comfort now, happiness now, pleasure now, security now. 
See, now is in the driver's seat. And to be honest, for a lot of people who profess to know Christ, the later is in the back seat and probably not even in the back seat, probably relegated to the trunk or maybe left at home in the garage. Because it really isn't a part. We have limited ourselves to only having a now part in our life. But see, here's what John says. Beware, because God's children are living for the one they are looking for. Do you hear that? That's what's true of God's children. You say, Pastor Walker, well, how do I do that? How can I live for him while I'm looking for him? Well, in our text, John gives us two helps. He does. They are two imperatives, two commands. And if you follow them, they will help you as a child of God this morning, reconnect your living with your looking. Let me show them to you and unpack them one at a time. The first one is found in verses 28 and 29. And there's each, each one of these imperatives, I'm just going to give you one word. The first one is remain. Look at verse 28. And now, little children, here's our word. Abide in him. It's the word that means stay. It means to dwell. It means to remain, not going anywhere else. Jesus used it in John 8 and John 15. And of course, his Talmud, here we have John, his disciple. He knows all about what Jesus taught about abiding. He knows how important it is. It's used 10 times in 1 John chapter 2, the chapter we just finished. He says it all through it. Why? Because he wants you to know that this is part and parcel about being a child of God. If you are born of God, you will have this characteristic trait in your life. He says, well, what does it look like? Well, you abide in the light. So you stay in the light and you don't, you're not characterized by darkness. The word of God will abide in you. You don't make worldly wisdom decisions. You're using God's word to do it. The spirit of God anoints you and that anointing living inside of you, stays in you. And the Spirit of God is working in you. And it's obvious by the way that you're living your life. See, this is a lifestyle he's talking about. So when he tells you, hey, you want to connect your living with your looking, here's what has to be true of God's children. They abide in him. Their lifestyle is different. Let me tell you how crucial that really is. He says, because based on whether you're abiding or not, Will be, that will make all the difference in the world when you actually see Jesus face to face. Notice in the text, when he comes back, there are two responses. And look at it this way. The re response of someone abiding in him will be confidence. Did you see the text? Look at the verse. When you come back, if you've been abiding in him, here's the purpose, that you may have confidence that when you stand before him, there won't be any doubts. You, want, you aren't going to think, oh, I hope, I, you know, I hope this has been real in my life. I don't know where for sure I'm going to end up. There won't be any of that because you've been abiding in him. But if you haven't been abiding in him, and this lifestyle that I've talked to you about of God's word in you and his spirit's working in you and he's changing you, if that hasn't been true of you, there's another response. And I can tell you this, it would be a horrible day to stand in the presence of Jesus and have this beer, and it says they shrink back in shame. Shrink back in shame. Adam and Eve, because our text has a substructure of Genesis language all throughout it, I'm convinced. From the beginning is a phrase all the way throughout, and I think what he's saying, shrink back in shame, Adam and Eve were given a now and a later by God. Here's the now, don't eat this because later you will be able to have that. 
But see, Satan came along, like he does for us, and you know what he emphasizes? He doesn't say anything to you about the later. He diminishes the later. And all he talks about is the now. See, because he says to Adam and Eve, see, if you eat the fruit now, God knows that you can be like him. See, the text later on is going to tell you, you be like Jesus. That's what children of God do. But Satan promises you can be him, like him, and have his power and his wisdom and authority, and you don't need him. Satan only offers now. And Adam and Eve, they disconnected. And it ruined their future and ours. And that pattern has been going on in Scripture ever since. Achan was told, here's what you don't do now. Here's what you don't do. You don't take anything in the first city of the conquest of Canaan. Nothing, no spoils in Jericho. Why? Because it's all Korban in Hebrew. It is dedicated to God. But see, Achan separated his now from later. You know why? Because he said he just took it. He took the gold and the silver bars and he took the Babylonian clothing and he hid it in the ground. Why? Because all Achan wanted was now. David looked out his window when he should have been at war and he looked and saw Bathsheba. He knows what God says about multiplying wives. He knows what God says about what sexual immorality is. All that David could think about on that day was now. Pleasure now, sexuality now. And he forsook and he got rid of, he detached from the later until it was too late. Gehazi, he wanted, see, his master Elisha turned down the money and the clothing from Naaman. But Gehazi didn't tell his master because in his heart and mind he wanted it. He wanted the now that his master had let go. See, all of them. All of them, they ended up shrinking back in shame. You know why? Because when their master came, it changed everything. When Adam and Eve, before they sinned, were in the garden, listen, they were naked, and it says, and they were unashamed. But as soon as they only lived for now, made the choice to sin against God, the Bible says that God came to them like he had in the cool of the day, the New King James, I think, says. And it says he came to them, and where did he find them? They were hiding. Because that's what you do when you're shrinking back in shame. You hide. Adam and Eve hid. Achan hid the clothes and the gold and silver in his tent. David hid the fact that he was an adulterer by having Uriah killed and didn't tell anybody what he did for a year. You see, Gehazi tried to hide from his master all the things that he took from Naaman. Why? Because when you are living from now, here's one of the characteristics. Ready? You are hiding from God. You don't want to talk with him. You don't want to have anything. So you're not going to be in the Bible. You're not going to be in prayer. You're not going to be faithful to church. You know why? Because you're hiding. It is a reflection of where you really are in your Christian life. It's the opposite, John says, of confidence. Literally in the Greek, the confidence word means literally all speech. And what it means is it was used between a master and their slave in the, in the first century. And it meant a master who had a slave and commanded him to do all these things that the slave could have confidence when his master showed up. Why? 
because he had done everything his master said. He hadn't cut corners. He hadn't cheated and stolen from his master and hid things for himself. He hadn't done any of those things. He could say, I have a good conscience. You can ask me anything, and I will tell you the truth. I'm not hiding anything. When I was a little kid, when it was safe to drive around town on your bicycle and you weren't worried about anybody snatching you up, I used to go to Bargain City. That was the Walmart of our day. I went in there and I really loved Mashbox cars. I've told you the story. So to make it short, I had a few of them and I only got them once in a while and I wanted the entire set. I had the Matchbox car set and you put little cars in each one of them. I only had about five and you could put 30 in there. So my dad only gave them to me occasionally. So I wanted more. So my buddy and I went in and we would watch the corners, see if anyone would come in, and we started putting them in our pockets. So we went out, we had our pockets full. We were stupid. <laughs> was it one at a time? We were stuffing them up. So we got stuff, and we went out, and no one stopped us. And we went back to the place where we had, and we opened all these up. We, I was starting to put them in my box. I loved it. So again, stupid. I went back, I said, wow, well, if we did it once, we could probably do it again. So we went back in there. This time, I wasn't just stuffing them in my pockets. I was stuffing them literally in my pants. And I was walking like this. <laughs> Stupid again. I get halfway down the, the aisle to get out, and a guy stopped me. And he goes, you're going to have to come with me, young man. Oh, that wasn't the worst of it. You think that's bad? That wasn't bad. Because he says, what's your dad's number? Because I'm calling him. My life was over. You know why? Because my dad was coming. And he came. And boy, did he come. He had to come off of work, and he found me. And you know what he said to me? Now, my dad may not be as popular anymore, but my dad spanked us. So I'm thinking all the time, I'm waiting for my dad, how many spankings am I going to get? And what is happening to me? You know what my dad said? He said, my son will never do that again. I can guarantee you that. <laughs> because I won't be here anymore. <laughs> so I got in the car, and my dad turned on the car and stopped, and he didn't say anything. And I go, here it comes. And you know what he did to me? This never, ever, ever happened. He said, you know what? I'm ashamed of you. Walkers don't steal. If you wanted another Matchbox car, why didn't you ask me? Wow, that was worse than any spanking any spanking. You know why? Because my dad came and I shrunk back from him. You know why? I wanted to hide it from him, but I couldn't. That wasn't the only time. When I was 16 and I got a new car and my dad said, as my mom and dad were going out of town to go shopping and eating, we'll be back in a few hours. I don't want you going anywhere in your car. They weren't even down the street hardly and I was getting in my car because I had a girlfriend. She lived in a city named Fostoria, about 20 minutes from my house. You know, I'm 16. I don't think things through, right? So I'm over there, and I know what, how long it takes to get to where they're going and dinner and come back. I, I got three, maybe four hours. I won't even nearly be that long. So I go to my girlfriend's house. I've been there maybe, maybe an hour, and it starts raining so hard that I can't even believe it. It's like a deluge. And I got this little sports car low, low to the ground. Of course, she lives in an area that's like this. It rains so hard, the whole area starts flooding. 
I drove my car, and I'm thinking like, okay, it's been great. <laughs> I've got to go. I like you, but I am not going to die today. So I got in the car. I didn't even get past the block down her house. The street was so deep with water, my car, my car stalled out. I couldn't move it. I didn't know what to do. And so I prayed. <laughs> Have mercy. It didn't work. So no cell phones, right? So my dad didn't know where I was when he got home. So he called and called and looked around, and he thought, my girlfriend. He called her parents because they went to our church. Is my son there? Oh, of course, you can't just say yes. Oh, he's been here for two hours. Thank you very little. <laughs> my dad said, and then they explained what happened. I will be right over. My dad came again. First thing he did, walked up to me and goes like this. Take the keys, they're gone. Right? It was another one. Disappointing, I think he said that time. I'm so disappointed that you would do this, that you would risk all this, that you wouldn't obey me. Later, years later, when I was 22, I graduated from college. My family lived in England, and I only had a couple of weeks, a few weeks left before school was done. I was going to walk the line, and I had a basketball game left. One basketball game in my whole career, and my dad showed up, and my mom flew in from England just to be at my last game. You know what was different this time? I had already, I had prepared and was playing in light of my dad being there. And it made all the difference. And my dad hugged me after the game was over. And then eventually he stayed for the graduation. He said, I'm so proud of you. Took pictures. It was a great day. It beat those other two occasions like crazy. Because my dad came. You know what? When he came the last time, I had confidence. Ask me anything. I've done what you've asked me to do. That's how I've lived my life. See, what about it when your dad comes? What about when your father comes? Will you cringe back in shame? Or will you have confidence? See, the Bible says, here's what it looks like, verse 29. It's two little conditional phrases that are used back to back. It says, and you know that he is righteous. You know this. And then it says, you know, a second thing tied to it. And you know that he who practices righteousness is born of God. See, here's what he says. You know what confidence is? Is that when you stand before Jesus, you will have lived a righteous life. Why? Because he did. And he lives in you. He abides in you. So here's what it looks like. Confidence comes from living like Jesus. That's where it comes from. And if you don't have confidence and you don't shrink back, it's because, look at verse 29, you're not practicing righteousness. You're not living a life that shows that he's abiding in you. That's where it comes from. And just in case you might get a little cocky and put your hands under and say, I'm all that great, he immediately goes into the second imperative. And he tells us in chapter 3, verse 1, where did you get the righteousness and he wants to get your attention, so look at chapter 3, verse 1. If the first imperative is remain, the second par imperative is resemble. Let me show you what I mean. See, he says, look at 3.1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. Oh, you know why you're righteous? You know how you can practice righteous? Not because you're great. Because he loves you. See, that's who you really are. 
It's because he loves you. God's children are righteous, and they live like Jesus, and it abides in him not because of anything good in and of themselves, not because of their good works, not because of their performance, not because of their self-righteousness, because he has lavished love on them, he says. So much so that he has to tell them where it came from because he wants them to know that don't think you're better than everybody else when you stand there in confidence someday because it hasn't been about you, it's been about him. So he says, See, behold, look at this, get, let it get your attention. See, he says, see, what kind of love? And that is a crazy word. It's only used a handful of times in the New Testament. And here's what it literally means. Of what country? Now, that doesn't mean, let me tell you what that means. In, in the ancient Near East, in the first century, when you lived in a little place that was kind of isolated, and there weren't a lot of people there in this little town, and there's a big ship that would, you could see it off in the water. It was coming toward your harbor, harbor and you, it was going to dock. People would literally run down from the city because they didn't get ships in very often, and as they get there, they start asking people who worked on the dock. They would say this, patapin, and that's the Greek word. What kind of? You know what they're asking? What country is that ship from? Because they're bringing all kinds of things and the word is literally translated foreign or alien, they would know this, that ship isn't from around here. And they said, well, where is that ship from? What country? And they would tell them where it was coming from. See, here's what God is saying. John is saying this, you know why you have righteousness? Because someone outside of you, someone foreign to you, some kind of love, not the love that we said a few verses ago in 2.15 to 17, the world's kind of love. No, this is a love that is out of this world, literally. This is the love of Jesus. This is a love that is given to us. You see that? What kind of love has the Father given to us? It's a free love. It is a gift love. It is not earned, and it makes you righteous, not because you already are. That's the kind of love that changes your life. Sandia Plesmond is a little girl that I met on my first trip to Haiti when she was six. And I went there to do a missions trip, but I also went there to find a child that I, Chris and I would support financially. It cost at the time, and it probably hasn't taken too much of a change, but maybe so, $50 a month, and you could pay for their entire education. I mean clothes, everything. Pencil, paper, everything. $50 a month. And I had to find someone. And so when I looked at Sandia, she was sitting next to another little girl who they both look really nice little girls. And I looked at her, and then I looked at her, and I waved at her, and she waved back, and she smiled at me, and that was it. <laughs> that was it. I chose her that day. I didn't know her family. I didn't even know her name. So I went and found Vlad and said, hey, ask her what her name is, and I want to meet her family. So we set it up. But you know what the basis of me choosing literally to love her? Nothing. She didn't have to do anything. She didn't have to perform. Pray for me. Because I'm hoping soon, San, Sandia, who's six, was six then, is 28, and she's coming to live with us. And what a great day it'll be. Uh, my wife got a chance to meet her, and we put her through school and everything, and now she's going to live with us for a couple years and hopefully become a U.S. citizen. We're on a program. But you know how all that started, and you know how our life has changed over all these years? It was because of love. It changed everything. What would that look like, Pastor Walker, if that love invaded me? 
three things and I'll be done. It defines you. That love will define you. It'll define you three ways. Ready? Who you are, who you will be, and who you should be. Let me say them again. Who you are, who you will be, and who you should be. Verse 1 of chapter 3 says, We are God's children. Listen to this. Behold what manner of love our Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And then literally it says, And so we are. He's going to say it again. So we, he's going to say it twice. You know why? Because he wants to inbred in our mind. Listen, he wants to indelibly imprint it on our hearts. You know what? He wants you to know this is who you are. You are a child of God. Romans 8, 35 and 39 have almost identical phrases. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from the love of... See, it's the love of God in Christ that's behind our adoption. We were born of God. And how are we getting in God's family? Well, it was all love. That's how we got in. In fact, he says in the verse, look at it yourself. Verse 2 starts with, Beloved, do you know that that is Jesus' name? My beloved son, hear him on the Mount of Transfiguration. See, Jesus is God's beloved. And when he adopts you out of love into his family, you get his name. He calls you beloved because you're a child. And all throughout this text, here's what you see. Here's what Jesus is. Here's what I am. He's righteous. I'm righteous. At the end, he's pure. I'm pure. He's beloved. I'm beloved. And back and forth, John goes, because he wants you to think of yourself in terms of you being like him, the imperative, resemble. Do you? Do you resemble him? Oh, see, beloved, this is who we are. We are children of God. See, children look like their fathers. They act like their fathers. But he goes on to say this. Be careful, though, because there are imposters. Because not only you like him positively, but you will also not be known by the world. And that's the negative part. He says, and the world didn't know him, and it doesn't know you. Do you see how it's always that? Positively, you're like Jesus in all these ways. Negatively, you're also like him. You will love what he loves, and you will hate what he hates, and you will re relate to the world in the way that he did. And if you only have a now and you don't have a later, you won't understand any of that. That's why he says, don't love the world back in the passage we did a, a couple weeks ago. You know why? Because you've got God's love, and they're incompatible with one another. And my, he says, the world's love doesn't define you. My love defines you. Does it? Does it really? Has God's love changed you? Have you got a different kind of love life? See, do you have the positive and negative? You're like Jesus in the way that you live positively and by what you don't do negatively. Can you say that? Because if you don't, you won't have any confidence. Not at all. So it'll change. See, his loving you will change who you are. It'll also change who you will be. Richard Baxter is a Puritan pastor, and he studied eschatology and after studying it all, he came to this realization. Listen to the little poem he wrote. My knowledge of that life, meaning the future, is small. The eye of faith is dim. In other words, I don't know much. But it is enough that Christ knows all, and I shall be like him. That was enough for him. Because here's the truth. Do you get it? 
If you are like him now, you will be fully like him later. If you are not like him now, you won't be with him later. See, that's what he's trying to tell us, that someday, someday, we will be like him. I shall be like him, not like him externally. We're not God. We don't like him in our deity, his deity. We're not going to be like him in that way. But what will be like him? We will be like him in the image that he's created us in. We will be, as Romans 8 says, fully conformed to his image. We will be like him in our purity, in our righteousness, and it'll be fully there, he says. But until then, listen, two verbs. You shall see him and be like him. See what he's saying? You'll see him. What did we say at the beginning? If you're looking for him, you will be living for him. See, beholding has a way of becoming. What I keep my focus on, what I keep my eyes on, if it's my career and my job and how much money I have and how accepted I am and how popular I am, how muscular, how beautiful, if, I, if all those things are my focus, see, listen, that's who I will become like. But he says, you will see him as he is. You will be, you will be like him because you're looking at him. That's what I hold out in front of myself. That's what we hold out in front of our teenagers. That's what we hold out in front of our lives. See, until he comes, I want to become more like him. God's love should create Christ-likeness. And every single one of us, notice in the text, everyone starts, the little word everyone starts our passage, and in verse to it ends our path. Everyone who has this hope. This is not just the really elite Christians. These aren't the great Christians, the ones that are really mature. Here's what's true of everyone who has God DNA, he says. So is his loving making you more like him? Do you think more like him? Do you talk more like him? Do you act more like him? Do you desire more like him? How about this? Do you see God's love? Are you looking at him, seeing how much he loves you when you're being criticized? Or you think, oh, I'm a failure. That's it, I'm done. Or do you see yourself in his love? When you are not accepted by others, when you are filled to the full with anxiety and fear and depression, do you see his love then? Is even those situations being transformed because of how much he loves you? How about this? How about when you're still not married and you want to be? How about when you're still looking for a job and you haven't got one? How about when you've been passed over for a promotion over and over again at your job? How about when you sin and fail? Do you know and see how much he loves you then? It is what defines you. See, it's what you are. It's what you will be, and lastly, what you should be. He says in verse 3 of our text, and everyone, see it, everyone, who has thus hopes, this hope in him, purifies himself. It doesn't say he might purify himself. He should purify him. He states it as a fact that this is just true of God's children. Here's what it is. They purify themselves. Why? As he is. We're going to touch on this later, but that's five times in 1 John. As he is. As he is. Christ-likeness isn't an option. It's essential. He says, as he is. If he has a hope 
that hope that you have in him, he abides in you, you have that hope, you're abiding in him. Here's what he says. That changes the way you live your life because your hope determines your holiness. If you're hoping in this world, you won't have any. But if you're hoping in the world to come and you're looking for him, you'll live different. You'll live different in your holiness, in your purity. How do I know, Pastor Walker? Because in the end, the two are connected. Didn't I tell you? If you have this hope, I'm looking for him, you will be pure. I'm living for him. It's reconnected from the inside out. That's how it is. See, remaining produces resembling. If you are abiding in him, remaining, remaining produces resembling. You will look like him more and more and more. Tonight, today, you and I are a child of the king. I once was an outcast stranger on earth, a sinner by choice and an alien by birth. But I've been adopted, my name's written down, an heir to a mansion, a robe and a crown. If you're a child of God, it's time we start living like it. Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around, are you living for the one you're looking for? Are you? Is it obvious? You know, he's righteous. Are you? Oh, these aren't perfect righteousness or perfect purity. It's patterned. Is that the pattern of your life? He's righteous. Are you righteous? He's pure. Are you pure? He's loving. Are you loving? You see what the text is asking you? Are you look like the family that you say that you belong to? See, perhaps you're here this morning and you'd say, Pastor Walker, pray for me. I am a child of God. I know Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. He's my father. But I got to honestly tell you, the family resemblance is pretty weak lately. There's a number of things perhaps in your life you say, you know what? I don't know that I would have confidence if he came today. I think I might shrink back. Shame might be more than confidence, but it would describe what I would be feeling. And I know it's because of the way I'm living. I'm not living like he lived. And there's some things in my life that, by God's grace, really need to change. With every head bowed and every Pastor Walker, pray for me. Pray for me as a child of God. I would live for the one I'm looking for. Would you just raise your hand and I'll pray for you as we close the service? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Balcony, main floor. Thank you. Anyone else? Anyone else? Thank you. Anyone else? Maybe you're here this morning and you have to say, Pastor Walker, I'm not really sure I am a child of God. Oh, I know religious things and I know some things about the Bible, but Jesus abiding in me, changing me, his love isn't really what defines me, but I would want it to be. I really want to come to know him today. Oh, see, when this service is over, anytime during the week, you can come and ask us, call us. We'll be glad to sit down and take the scriptures and show you today how you can be born of God and know it, how you can be truly a child of God and so that you can look forward to him coming back soon. Oh, Father, I know you've seen hands and you've seen hearts. 
Thank you for the honesty of people here today who did raise their hands. I pray for them. I pray that, Lord, they would truly live for the one they're looking for, that our lives would be different because you are in us, and that you're making us more like you through that love every day. For those who raise their hand, indicating they're not really sure whether they are a child of God, whether they've ever put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone in his death and resurrection, I pray, Father, that you would draw them unto yourself and that your love would overcome their unbelief and bring them to repentance and faith in Jesus, that in all these things he might be preeminent and glorified as he alone deserves. For it's his matchless name we pray. Amen.